Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio podcast, session number seven. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Session 7 of the Working Class Audio Podcast. Glad you're here. Uh, today's show, of course, I'm excited. I'm always excited about the show. But uh, today I have on a friend who I can always reach out to about business things or technique things or, you know, generally anything. And uh, his resume is quite impressive. Jack White, Red Fang, North Mississippi All-Stars, Buddy Guy. I'm talking about my friend Vance Powell. Really happy to have him on the show today. Uh, what you're going to miss, or unfortunately, and I'll try to figure out a way to possibly post this, no guarantees, so don't get excited just yet. Vance and I started out with a video call at first, and he gave me a tour of his new incarnation of Sputnik Studios, his private uh, studio that he shares with engineer Mitch Dane, uh, another friend. He took his laptop around and said, you know, check it out. Here's the new board and here's here's the live room and here's Mitch's room and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the connection starts to get really wonky at that point because I don't know, maybe I just don't have the best internet in the planet. So we cancel the call and we start again as an audio-only call. So we're picking that up uh, as as an audio call. So most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, 
you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's just jump right in and get started because it's a long conversation that has been edited down uh, quite a bit because, you know, I could keep you here all day and Vance and I could talk all day, honestly. So here it is, Mr. Vance Powell. How about that? How about that? Excellent. That's great. Not like I don't want to see your pretty face, but, you know, it's all about, you know. Yeah, whatever. It's all about bandwidth. What? Whatever, dude. Whatever. Have we talked about this podcast? No, huh? You know, we could talk about some gear stuff. That's not a problem. But we want to talk about whatever parts of the discussion about money you're comfortable with. You know, and if something's off limits, you just tell me it's off limits and you don't want to talk about it. I don't think there's very much that's off limits for me. To be honest with you, I don't I don't really have any issues. Uh, I mean not always talk about the exact amounts. No, no. I can talk pretty easily to the concept of of the financials of how it works for me here. That's exactly what I want to talk about. I got my coffee. I got my hole. I'm sitting on my lard ass on my couch. Mm. Couldn't be any better. I'm going to put my feet up. Awesome. Talk to me. Tell me your, your woes. Um, all right. So you just, you have this new studio. Yes. Okay. So the old Sputnik situation was a was basically you. Uh, what's I, Mitch Dang? Uh, yeah, it's Mitch's last name. I was spacing on. Uh, so, all right. So you and you and Mitch have split Sputnik uh, in the past. You used to be in an old building, and you rented. We rented. We rented from Gary Bell's at the House of Blues. How long did you rent that space for? Mitch, almost ten years. Me, eight years. Eight. Eight. And almost eight and a half. Okay. So you rented it from uh, the guy from the House of Blues. So obviously building a studio was a perfectly fine thing to do, especially in Nashville. Yeah. We've been looking for two years for a place. And without getting into too much detail, our situation in House of Blues became tenuous, uh, not by any fault of our own. You know, sometimes when people own things, they change their mind. So suddenly we were sort of at a point, this would have been, I would say, in October of last year. Mitch was driving somewhere, and this property, it's one block by mail, but it's its about two and a half block walk from the old Sputnik. Okay. This house, which was an 1,100-square-foot house built in 1942, uh, was available, and I think it had just gone on the market. And Mitch got on on our realtor, and 
he made it happen. It's kind of one of those things where it just kind of worked. Well, let me wait a second now. Are you renting or did you buy the building? Mitch bought the building and I'm renting from him. Okay. And, and that worked out really good for me for a couple reasons. One, it allows me a little bit of leeway in case I want to move or, or, or do something different in the future. I mean, I'm under, we have a lease agreement, like a five-year deal. But I think what's going to end up happening is here in the next year, uh, as we tweak this room and as it gets better and how my world becomes more my world, I have a feeling I'll just buy into it, which we set up in our arrangement that I can do that. So, Do you find it absolutely critical that you have this space? Could you not function without it? No, I couldn't function without it. And the, the reason is to be honest with you, is that the way the money works these days, it doesn't make sense for me to work where I'm spending seven or $800 a day at a studio that's not mine, using someone else's gear that may or may not be available to mix a record. Uh, it, it makes more sense to me to invest money in gear that I use the way I want to use it and set it up how I want to use it and go from there. I could probably go over to Blackbird and rent a room for five to 10 grand a month, right? Have a situation where, where uh, you know, it would be a really good situation, but be very expensive to me. And uh, the second that I had a week off, some other idiot's asshole would be sitting in my chair. You know what I mean? Right. Some other idiot asshole is what I meant. Uh, not idiot's asshole. That's a, that's, that was wrong grammar. Like idiot asshole was good grammar, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, but and so it's kind of one of those things. Uh, I can decide whether I want to work or not. I, I can just decide everything is mine. I can paint it whatever color I want. I can do whatever I want here. And it's, it's mine. Uh, Mitch and I have a have a good lease agreement. It's three times more expensive than it was down the street. But obviously, uh, it's manageable because you're there. It is manageable uh, because I'm here. I, I have two rooms, so I, I'm not 100% there yet. I probably have another about months worth of work to make it happen, or maybe a little less. But um, I'm busy enough that I I can I could probably do two projects at once. Uh, just just the way the workflow works. I could be mixing in one room while the other room's being set up and then while the other room is printing and stems and all that because I print stems, I do stems for everything, and um, which is a whole other conversation, but I print stems for everything. And then uh, I could be mixing in the other room while that's going on. So the opportunity to make more income is there, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, most definitely. Okay, so it's it's definitely it's cost you some money to get in there. I put about a hundred thousand dollars of my own money in it so far this year. Wow. Well, that's a significant investment, but you're I mean shit, you just got uh, nominated for another Grammy, right? Yeah, for Lazaretto, which, you know, I recorded uh, five of the 11 or 12 songs on there and Josh Smith, who was my assistant, recorded the rest of it and then him and Jack mixed it. You know, so it, it's not quite like Blunderbuss where I recorded every single track and mixed every single track of the whole record. 
Well, and I and I only bring that up because I guess I'm looking at it from managing the future here for you. Not like I'm going to manage your future, but <laughs> you put a hundred grand in, and it's not it's not like you're an up and coming guy who just had some money saved and put a hundred grand in, and there's nothing ahead. I bought Apple at a hundred dollars. Oh. I had worked at Claire Brothers for almost ten years, and I had a four hundred one k, and I rolled it over into an IRA. And the first thing I did was buy Apple uh, at about a hundred dollars. Oh my God. So uh, I put my money where my mouth is. I mean, I didn't buy it at eight. I would have liked to have done that. But I mean, even to buy it at a hundred would have been a coup. Yeah. A hundred is great. Cause it's what? Seven twenty some or something now. Oh, after wow. Split, I mean, I mean, it's effectively that after the split because it's split seven to one. So yeah. But you know, I, I look. Don't get me wrong, man. I'm I'm smiling. I'm I'm happy. You know, I, I'm I'm sitting here looking at my MacBook Pro and uh, while holding my iPhone. So you know, I eat my own dog food pretty much. Well, but but it, it came down this year that I had to take a bunch of time off to build this, right. and I didn't have a lot of capital to do it. And it was just like, okay, you know, this console came available. It required a lot of work. Um, still, I mean, it doesn't require, it still doesn't require a lot of work. It's going to require some, a little bit of work here, but it's a big item. It's 12 feet long. You know, it's, it's going to require a little maintenance, maybe not as much maintenance as an SSL. Well, yeah, maybe not. Maybe. I don't know. What's uh? what model is that? Soundcraft? Soundcraft 3200. It's the, it's the biggest desk that Soundcraft ever made. Uh Uh-huh. This one is the biggest one they've ever made. They ever made. But right. it came from Hans Zimmer, right? It was Hans Zimmer's, yeah. Like recently, or did he have it in storage? No, no, no. no. He got rid of it years ago, uh, 10, 10 or more years ago. And uh, it was purchased by a man here in Nashville by the name of Jim McHale. And he had it here until he moved his studio from Nashville. He moved it down to Atlanta, and it was in Atlanta. And um, I think Jim had a heart attack and passed away, unfortunately. He was a very nice man. And it sat in his garage uh, until his wife decided she wanted to get rid of it. And um, she, uh, a friend of ours here in town, she asked if he could just broker the sale of all of Jim's stuff. And instead of him brokering the sale, he just bought it all from her in a lump sum. And then I bought the console from him. So you tapped into your 401k to get into your retirement savings. It was an IRA. Okay. Did you pay a penalty? Yeah, sure. Okay. Didn't have a choice. But you needed the capital. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the other thing is, is that I'm not big on owing money to people. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to go to the bank and take out a loan mortgaged against my gear or whatever. Could have done that, but I just don't want to do it. I'm a guy who lives off of. Um, I don't live off of, but I only use an American Express, and the reason I do that is that that way I don't, you know, I don't, I don't hold a balance. Why? Because you have to pay it off at the end of the month? Mm-hmm. Have you ever dipped a little too deep into the American Express and gone, uh, okay, can't pay it off this month? Yeah, got to pay it off. So so that, I mean, that basically means that that limits me slightly to, you know, what I can do. So yeah, for me, you know, I, I don't like to owe people money. I don't like to owe a bank money. I don't have a note or a loan on any of my gear. I have a, I have a note on my house, obviously. I have a note on my car. So all the debt I have, really, honestly, is purely uh, at my home. 
You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. nothing to do with the business. Okay. Uh, who do you uh, who do you use for your in? Do you have gear insurance? Yes. Who do I you use, use? Uh, Joe Montarello. Joe Montarello. Yeah. Okay. I used him. But you know the great thing about about him is that the company it's it's a blanket policy. Yeah. You know, if if something happens, they write me a check for the amount. You know, it's um, it's not like I'm going to have to look up receipts for my. 1176. And there's a lot of things that are interesting about insurance companies. If you have a, your gear in your house and your gear causes a fire and burns your house down, they don't, they're not going to pay for that. By the same token, if your house burns down and destroys your gear, the house, your homeowners isn't going to pay for that either. It's kind of like that deal, you know, you have your Pro Tools rig in your car because you're on your way to a gig. Somebody breaks in and steals it. Your homeowners isn't going to pay for it. You know what I mean? Right. But but if you have a guitar on the wall and it's a piece of art and someone breaks in and steals it, your homeowners does pay for it. I think that if you have a studio in your home, unless you have a writer, which you can get for a home business writer, your best bet is just call Joe and say, look, because that's basically what this thing is that I that we have. It's it's an insurance policy. If anything happens to this, they're going to pay for it, basically. Yeah. I know it sounds weird, but of course it's expensive. It's not like $15 a month. No, no. It's, I, I can't remember what I was paying. It's several hundred. But it's like a qu every quarter. Yeah, I pay it every month. But you, you, it doesn't matter. You can pay it every quarter if you want. Yeah. I think, it, I, think I was paying like 1200 a year, I want to say. Yeah. Well, it depends on what your investment is. Right. Yeah. That's, I think mine's probably mine's probably close to two grand, something like that. Okay. Yeah, or a little more actually. A, qu a quarter? No. Or a year yeah. rather. Yeah, I'd, I'd say twenty-seven, fifty-three grand a year, something like that. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, considering your your investment is much much larger than mine. Yeah. Uh, let's talk gear gear talk for just a short sure. minute. Um, so this console, why did you make the choice of, of a Soundcraft in of that? What era is that? Uh, it was built in 1992. It's like I said, it's the last big Soundcraft console they ever made. It's it's the first console of the Gray series. So like before that, like the TS24, mm -hmm. that would have been like 84, 85, 86. That was the big Soundcraft desk, right? This one is definitely post-SSL. It has gates on every channel. Doesn't have compressors, but it does have gates on every channel. And it's 32 buses, you know? So it was made for 32-track recorders, either 32-track digital recorders or, you know, the often talked about and never actually seen 32-track 3-inch machine, you know? Or 2-inch or two machine, for that matter, you know? Yeah, I don't. So, I don't think I've ever seen a thirty-two track three-inch machine. Well, there's all there was only one. I mean, but I mean, Studer fooled around with it. I know that uh, MCI showed one at AES one year. Um, you know, the reel of tape to go to three-inch, re a three-inch reel like went from like fifteen pounds to like forty-five, and it was a serious, serious issue to move tape around on one. You know, if you look at an A eight hundred. 800, all the schematics are wired for 32 channels. Huh. Which is pretty bizarre. I mean, 800s had that kick plate at the bottom. 
that was for a row of modules. You could, you could, there was another frame that would go under there. And it was just, you know, it was something that people were, you know, trying to figure out how do we get more tracks? Right. You know, and I mean, Sony, Sony and Mitsubishi and 3M, you know, I mean, in the early 80s, they had it figured out they're like digital, let's go digital. And so, you know, by 92, 93, 3348s were out, I think. And, and Mitsubishi's, the X32s, 32 bus console made sense. You're mixing out of the box these days, right? I never, yeah, I, I, I haven't mixed in the box in, I don't know, eight, eight years or so. Do you think you would have stayed, do you think you would have gone in the, or, or been in the box today had it not been for your work with Jack? No. That's just probably added more fuel to your fire of mixing yeah, out of the added, box. It well, it, it, it added more fuel to the thing that I hated, and that was that, you know, I hate looking at a screen, mousing around a little tiny arrow. There's so many things. There's so many issues. And I know, you know, you and I beat this bush over and over again in public and in private. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things that an analog console-based workflow, whether it's tape or Pro Tools, uh, delivers to someone that no control surface, you know, glorified iPad, uh, knob, virtual knob thing is ever going to do. And that is, you know, there's a sizable amount of serendipity that happens when you're mixing on a console. I tend to, if I'm doing a record, a whole record, like the drums always go on the same channels, right? I mean, that makes sense, sure. right? Yeah. And the guitars kind of go on the same channels as best you can. I, I set up my console from rhythm to melody, right? So I know that sounds weird, but it's like drums, percussion, bass, rhythm guitars, piano, organ, that kind of vibe, lead guitar, sort of thing, you know, lead guitar, strings, melody, I'm getting at here, basically, background vocals, vocals. That's kind of how I set it up. And then effects on the other end, right? Right. From left to right. So so that the rhythm is in a spot, you know, the rhythm happens here, these guitars, this melody happens here, and this happens, vocals happen here. And, okay, and all that is great. That's awesome. But what I'll do is I'll set up like maybe eight channels. I mean, I have a big desk, so I'll set up maybe eight channels on the desk for guitars, okay? Maybe I'd use all those eight channels, and I may set up eight channels for keyboards. Uh, if I get the, you know, the stupid mix where there's nine million tracks, it's going to end up in those eight tracks, usually, one way or the other. Yeah, there might be some mixing in the box, as in a submix which I just sort of think is like, well, the producer should have done his fucking job. Right. You know, and got uh, these three guitar mic rhythm tracks, three mic rhythm tracks down to one fucking track. You know what I mean? Or two at least. I don't even deal in that kind of a huge or, or colossal track count. And even when well, I'm... I, I, just, I just mixed a song that was 186 88.2 tracks. Oh, God. I had to borrow an HDX card, a second HDX card, just to open the session. I mean, there's, you know, shit. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And then what I did was I mixed the song and printed stems. And when I printed stems, there were 30 fucking stems, you know? And I mean, and this is me being pretty 
pretty pretty mixery guy. Now let's. I want to clarify this because uh, if I hear you correctly, tell tell me if this process is is not correct. What I'm stating here, you're mixing out of Pro Tools, and you're going into your board, and uh-huh. you mix. And when you say, I have I have, I have sixty four outputs of my converters. Okay. And, and how many inputs do you have on your Pro Tools rig? I only have 24. How many stems are you printing? I printed 30. Now, when you say stems, are you talking about you're taking uh, moves from the console and printing those? So if there's a yep. recall, it's not a big hassle? Yep. Okay. Can you... It's three and a half hours to stem. Okay. Detail that out in, in a short paragraph for me. Well, basically what I do is, so uh, I group together like-minded things. Right. Like this particular track we're talking about had 11 stereo kick drum tracks. <laughs> that, wait, that they gave you? Yeah. Oh. Like 11. Like one wasn't enough, but one in stereo wasn't enough. No, they gave me 11. And and four of the 11 were exactly the same sound. Wow. I mean, look, I, I can't make this shit up. You know what I mean? What I did was I submixed those in the computer to a stereo track right to a stereo aux and then that aux went to tracks three and four on my desk okay all right there was no snare drum on the track anywhere it was just kick drum because it was a pop thing and then on tracks one and two there were about 20 tracks of claps and stomps because that's the new uh the new cool thing claps and stomps those 20 tracks submixed down to two and ad finitum. There were banjos and mandolins and keyboards and synths and vocals and doubles and harmonies and harmony doubles and harmony triples and lead vocal doubles and party sounds and synth sweeps and sitars and electric guitars. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Tell me there was at least a rough mix to, to go by. Well, there was a rough mix to go by. Okay. Well, well, there was... It got mixed four times. So whoever mixed it the last time, I got his mix. I don't know who it was. I don't have any idea. And if I did, I wouldn't even say it. So, uh, but it, it was. this is a big time gig. It's a big time RCA pop act. Not something I normally do, but it came to me and the money was good. And I thought, oh, it'll be a challenge. And I didn't realize how much of a challenge. So I have 64 inputs. I basically came down to 30 stereo tracks of the 186 tracks in the song. Okay, so you it's coming out of Pro Tools. It goes into the board. You're mixing with fader automation on the board as well as yes. hand moves. You're mi- yep. you, it feels good to you. You print mm-hmm. those like-minded things. So what I do, yeah. So what I do is once I get it, I print the mix. I print all the versions. And then I just put the desk in solo in place and I solo tracks one and two claps and stomps. And I run tra- a, a track, a stem without my processing, outboard processing, which is just my compressor, right? You two mean, bus two bu- okay, right. Without that, I turn that off <clears throat> and I just run that for the whole song. And then I ran the 11 kick drum tracks, which were submixed to two tracks for the whole song. And then ad finitum 30 times. So yeah, I had to play the track back 30 times to do all the stems. Then once I did all the stems, I opened that session in Pro Tools, right? Came out 
you know, a pair of outputs and went back into my 2500, the insert, the uh, uh, basically You're out of Pro Tools into my 2500, out of the 2500, back into the insert return of my console. And I tweaked the mix from there. Your 2500 meaning your API compressor? API. Yep. <clears throat> Got it. So basically I baked all my parallels, all my effects, I baked all that in. And then I sat and spent a whole day with uh, the manager, artist, producer, whoever it was, and uh, did tweaks for a whole entire day. It was joyous. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't talk on that same day. No, that would have been bad. And sometime around about 10 o'clock, I'd been there 12 hours. I just said, okay, this is the final mix of the day. This is it. And it's like, oh, 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 okay. Like, like, ah, I should have just said this at six, you know. <laughs> just, just put an end to this. But uh, I kind of pulled the Chris Ward algae, you know, final mix. That, that's how you know that Chris is done and you got to pay for more of it. You get the mix labeled final mix. Right. And I've been doing that, this, this sort of stem thing for a while now. Uh, and to be honest with you, I, I really like it. Um, you know, it's kind of like revisionist history because you make a lot of moves and you mix stuff in the moment and then you go away and you come back and you listen to it and you go, oh, why didn't I hear that? Why didn't I do this? And then, you know, I chop the stems up, move things around, add more effects, add more compression, whatever it takes to make it cool. Is the board bringing you more emotional satisfaction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, like I was saying earlier, if I set everything up in the same spot, right, I'll set up the next, like I'll print mixes and everything, and then I'll open the next song, set it all up in almost the same spot, and just with the automation on, just hit play and see what happens. Sometimes really cool shit happens. I bet. You know, sometimes uh, a guitar solo on the last track is now a keyboard that gets, turns up really loud and has some effect on it in the middle of the third verse that was the bridge before. And you know, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, sometimes just cool, weird stuff happens. And that's the serendipitous mixing thing. You know, sometimes there's an effect on something that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Uh, I usually use two tracks for bass guitar, uh, but sometimes I'll use a third track I leave a third track around there for like an effect, like a distortion or something. And, you know, sometimes I'll put like a keyboard there, something that's in that frequency range. You know what I mean? Like not, not melody, but sort of rhythm, right? You know, like a low keyboard. I mean, I've had some really interesting things happen when I open it the next day and I've got, or I open it from the next song and the, I put a, I've got a distortion bass sort of sound that's now going into a slap echo or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's cool. How can I use that in this song? You know, doesn't always work, believe me. It's interesting because when I compare two friends of mine, you, you and Andrew Sheps, uh, Andrew's now like doing a lot of stuff in the box. box. Does everything in the box. And you situation is a little different. I mean, I mean, I can't speak for him and I I don't want to speak out of turn, but he works for a couple of producers that are well known for taking a long time to make decisions and, and also make multiple, multiple, multiple changes on projects. Right. 
Well, and I'm and I'm not saying uh, one's better or the other, but it's it's just two different flavors. It's two different working styles because I respect both of the work that both of you do. Well, I think that I think that if Andrew didn't let let me rephrase it, if Andrew was working on projects that he's producing and the way that he probably was brought up doing. He would probably mix on his 8068 and he would make decisions and it would go down the line. But but I think that the thing is, is his client, you know, his big client doesn't work that way. Yeah. He wants right. mixed tweets in the middle of the night and wants to make five different changes over the course of, you know, two and a half hours. And it's like some, sometimes that just doesn't work. And, and then wants to work on multiple songs at the same time. That's the downside of, again, back to, I could, I could go on and on about the reasons why Pro Tools have ruined creativity in, in records. Uh, there's tons of things you can do in Pro Tools you could never do before that are super creative. There's tons of things that you couldn't do before you can do that ruin creativity, like playlists, auto-tune. Yeah. Uh, com- you know, easy comping, uh, the ability to put off, record as many tracks as you fucking want, uh, put off making decisions until the last minute, and then decide to, and then decide to change those decisions on a whim. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I think it's up to the individual to really, uh, it it takes a little bit of, well, it takes a lot of discipline to not go down those paths to you. One has to not be so susceptible to those I don't don't don't, want to say, I mean, maybe discipline is the thing, but I think what it, has to do is it has it's more about vision i think we've all worked with artists that their vision is to get a band together teach them the song and i'm not talking about producers i'm I'm talking about artists teach them the song point them in a few directions record it then spend two months tweaking it to be what they really wanted but couldn't hear in their head Mm. i mean yeah because they didn't have the vision of what they wanted or they didn't believe in their own vision enough to just let it happen. The beauty of working with Jack White is that even when something is kind of wrong, you know, uh, he'll figure out some way to turn that frown upside down, so to speak. You know, I mean, I, I could, I could talk for 20 minutes about things that, were a decision was made at the moment that later we had to sort, you know, work around something and something even cooler came out of it. You know what I mean? And I think that that's indicative of the analog workflow. Well, it is, you know what I mean? And, and, and then there's other things, you know, there's no undo, there's only redo. 
You know, redo is never going to be <laughs> as good as the original unless it's better. I mean, it happens. Yeah. You're punching in a guitar solo. You, you punch in over the wrong part. Now you got to do it again. Wow, that's better. Oh, that's not as good. Keep going until it's better. You know, and there's a there's a there's a concept about with Pro Tools that happens. And that is, yeah, man, that is great. It's good enough. It's great. I can tweak it later. You know, that's the wrong idea. Because, because what ends up happening is often you don't. Or when it comes time to do it, the house is now built upon this thing you should have fixed originally. Especially like drums, drum parts, editing, things like that. I mean, I can't tell you the number of records that have come to me that, that felt like they were just... It was like a, somebody was playing Jenga and pulled all the pull all pull all the thing out. The whole thing fell. Then they stuck it back together, and it was completely looked like the Jenga tower, but yet didn't sound like anybody played it at the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it looks well, like that, but it's not like the original. And and I don't bring this up as a challenge to the analog workflow because I I came from the analog workflow, and I and I love that to, to some degree. And I apply those principles in when I work in Pro Tools, you know, I make commitments, I get artists to make commitments and I don't walk away with like 11 stereo kick drum tracks, for example, <laughs> never. Uh, but would you say that economically Pro Tools does allow for those on a budget to work a little quicker at, you know, it's like, Oh, I love what I did there. Oh, but I, you know, I fucked that one part up and I, and I'm tired. My fingers are burned. I really don't want to play it. And, and we only have this day. Can you fix it? Well, sure. Well, I mean, I mean Pro Tools has allowed uh, the music industry to become more, uh, I was going to say democratized, but that's really not the right word. Let's put it this way. Pro Tools has allowed the lowest common denominator to win instead of the, the, instead of the best, you know, the cream rising to the top, it's just yep. sort of let it all get smushed together. Because now you, you don't have to you don't have to be a very good engineer. You don't have to be a very good guitar player. You don't even have to own a drum set. You, you don't have to do any of that stuff. And yet you can make a pretty damn good recording, you know, uh, easy drummer and knowing a few chords. You can make a record and put it out on iTunes. And I know people who have, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, so, so the good news is we can, a lot more music can come out, right? The bad news is right. a lot more music can come out Sure. because now there's no curation. There's no, there's no responsibility. There's none of those things that happened you know, and I'm not even going to go back and say, you know, the good old days of record labels and all. But I mean, basically, recording studios are expensive. I mean, I can talk, I can talk to about that. You know, my electric bill is about eight bills a month. I'm at about five thousand dollars or so a month just just to break even without paying anybody, without paying my assistant, without paying me, without paying anything, and not paying my home mortgage or any of that. Just, I'm talking about just the studio, right? So for some people, that's what they, I mean, you know, I know people who would be like, oh man, God, I wish I made five grand a month, you know? God, that'd be great. Sure. You know what I mean? 
I mean, yeah, it's almost 50-some thousand, $60,000 a year. It's awesome. Okay, well, look at it this way. I I have to make five grand a month before I make any money. Before I can, I have to make five grand a month before I even can pay my, like that's that's the break even point of the studio, you know? And if I just had a Pro Tools rig and I was in my basement of my house, I could sit here and smile and talk about how much money I'm making and, you know, own shopping centers and bars and go on travel and blah, 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 because I'm just making all this other money. The problem is, is that I wouldn't be happy doing it and it isn't the way I want to work. Well, let's also put it into perspective because, you know, let's go back. Well, let's go back eight years to the beginning of, of Sputnik, right? Mm-hmm. At that time, you weren't a household name. Not not by far. No. But and, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was already a Grammy winner at that point. Isn't that funny? That's that is funny. You know, I I won a Grammy for the George Clay record in two thousand two. I did two thousand one. I remember asking you one time. I said, "Does you know having a Grammy? Do you think that that brings you more work?" And at the time, you'd said no. Do you still do you still feel that way? No, Grammys don't equate to money. They don't equate to they don't equate to anything but pure prestige. That's the thing that they equate to. They, you know, once you kind of get the idea of how the Grammys are voted and once you figure that out, you realize that the people that you look up to and you look up and like people in this business, such as yourself, vote for, you know, we vote for ourselves. I mean, in other words, we vote for our own kind. Um, I'm not voting on, you know, uh, mariachi records and Tejano because I don't know anything about it. Right. And and you probably don't know very many people in that world. I don't know very many people in that. Well, yeah, I, do, I definitely don't. I don't know any people really in that world. So I'm not going to vote for them. So I'm going to vote for producers and engineers. And I'm going to vote on records, rock records I like and things like that. So, you know, it is it is a true peer thing. And that's the best part of the Grammys. Because, you know, it's not open to everybody like the CMAs, which here in Nashville is a joke. The CMAs, you just buy a membership at CMA and then you can vote on whoever you want, which basically means the record labels buy everyone in the record label uh, a membership to the CMA and says, hey, this year we're voting on Dirks Bitly. We want Dirks oh, to win right. a CMA this year. Got it. It's like, you know, you're just, you're, you're just basically, let's see the biggest company who they can, who can win every year. And they trade let's- off and that's the crazy part. It's like, okay, well, this year it's going to be Sony and Sony's artist is Blake Shelton and they're going to win. It's, you know, it's complete crap. Or the American Music Awards, which is completely made up, bunch of bullshit made up by Dick Clark. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, the People's Choice Award, Dick Clark, again, complete bullshit. American, the Academy of Country Music in LA, where the hell the hell came up with that shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's complete and utter bullshit. The Grammys are the only thing the Grammys and the Oscars, they have the same requirements. They, you know, only so many categories can be voted on by the general populace. And then you get X number of votes for the rest of it. Now, a couple of years yeah. ago, they weeded the categories down. And I think that actually made the Grammys a little less relevant, even though it made the show shorter and it gave out less awards. You know, the reality is, is that I don't think that you can lump together Americana into one or two categories. You can't lump together folk, blues, 
traditional blues, bluegrass, and all that sort of vibe into one category and call it Americana and give away one award. It's kind of bullshit. I mean, the Latin Grammys, the you know, Latin music has their own fucking Grammys because there were so many different types of Latin music. You know, yeah. so I mean, I, I have my own issues with the with the Naris and the producers and engineers wing. Tomorrow, I'm 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 driving actually. Uh, all the the girls who run the Naris wing here, the Peony, the the whole Naris wing. I'm driving them. We're going over to Asheville, North Carolina, to do a Naris panel tomorrow night at Echo Mountain, and I'm going to go to Moog, which will be awesome. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's why I'm going. I'm going to Moog. Um, but, you know, part of my issue that I've I brought up to Marine Droney and to other people is that Naris represents people that that aren't exactly me. They, they represent Al Schmidt really well. They represent yeah, yeah. Tony uh, Maserati really well. They represent Chuck Ainley really well. They represent... Even George Massenberg, in, in you know, in his day, really well. Some of the Nashville guys here, Justin Niebank, they represent him really well because their focus is on this particular music genre that is a commercial endeavor by a multinational billion-dollar companies. You know what I mean? These major label yeah. record deals. The reality is, is that I have done. This is going to sound pretty shocking. All right. Are you ready for this? In the last four years. Okay. Last year, I mixed 37 records last year. You're a busy man. But I made six records, produced and mixed, right? And then I mixed about 25 singles, radio mixes, live mixes, uh, live to disc you know, straight to lacquer over at Jack's place last year, about 50 total. Let's say, all okay. right. Do you know how many of those were major label? None. None. Uh, the year before that, do you know how many major label records I did? One. One. Blunderbuss. Yeah. Blunderbuss isn't even a major label record because it's a third man record distributed by a major label. I did one major label record last year, actually, to be honest with you. I mixed uh, Wolf Mother, which is Universal Australia. And this year, I mixed Jeff the Brotherhood for Warner. One. One last year, one this year. Now, this year, I did, uh, I take that back. I just did one for Universal here and one for Big Machine, which is a major label now. Um, and one of those two was great, and the other one completely sucked. Just the experience of dealing with the label. Right. Not the bands or anybody else. Just just dealing with the label. You know? And so for me, I, I, those, like the concept of NARES, producers and engineers wing, like, like all that, that doesn't mean shit to me. And, I, and, I'm, and unfortunately, like, I talked to Maureen about this, you know, a little bit at length. At South By last year, we, we tried to talk a little bit. And I was just like, you have to, you have to tell, you know, try to show me why I, I should be interested, even though I'm interested and I am a member and I, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm a believer. I, I like what Naris is all about, but the reality is, is that why would my assistant who's young and 
doing records, why would he be interested in being a member of Neris? Yeah. What, what point is there? Uh, even more pointless is AES. I just let my AES membership go. It means nothing to me because there's nothing there. It's all the old school. It's all the old guard here. And I can't even imagine what it's like in a city like San Francisco where the, you know, you don't have a big recording. You you have a recording history, but you don't have a big recording market. There. You're you are like, correct in that. You know, so so or Seattle or Portland. I mean, yeah, I mean, Portland has a bunch of bands and they have a bunch of studios, but I I can tell you right now, none of them give a shit about Naris or AES. What's tough, like, okay, so Mike Winger is the executive director of, of our local chapter, and and he's a friend of mine uh, who I think very highly of. And of course- And obviously Romo's a part of it. Well, Ro Romanowski was the president. He's no longer right. the president. He's termed right. out. And Michael Starita is, who's also a cool dude. And I told I told Winger before he became the executive director and he he was the president. He was always saying, hey, man, have you upped your membership and which is a hundred bucks? And I would say, yeah, I'm a little tight on funds. I need to renew my Costco membership because I get more out of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I told him, I said, Mike, when you become executive director, if you can, like, make it cool, then I'm happy to renew my membership because you know, I believe in Mike and, and, and Romanowski and Starita and I believe in those guys, but the organization from the top down, really it's, I don't know. I agree with you. I think there's some, some old guard thought process. I mean, I, I brought this up to, to Marine. I just said, as I see it right now, the Grammys are an award show. They're an award show masquerading as a, uh, as a trade organization, you know, it's about a trade, right? You know, this trade of music. And while there is things, you know, music cares is cool. Yeah. Music you know, cares is very cool. I mean, there's a bunch of things that are cool. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is how, how do you get, how do we get somebody who's 25 interested in spending a hundred bucks a year to be a member of Naris? It's really tough because there's no, there's, there's nothing for them. And like they have these producers and engineer wings meetings here in town, these committee meetings. And, you know, I get invited to them because I'm a member and I have been on committees and all that in the past. They're at, you know, seven or eight in the morning. I live, you know, 30 minutes away. And um, I just work till 1 a.m. Because I don't work music row 10, 2, and 6. I work till we're done every day. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you, you guys just, you know, you, you set these meetings up so that Chuck Ainley can get to his 10 o'clock session. You know what I mean? Or Justin Ebank can get to his mix at 10 or whatever. You, you're not thinking about the other people. You could almost take the independent guys, those that are not on major labels, as you said, I mean, like 99% of the work you did. Everybody, everybody I'm doing. Yeah. And I mean, you can almost have a separate faction. Uh, or a separate organization that represents those people. Yeah, I just, I just don't know what. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that I mean, all, all of this talk, and I don't want to sit here and bash Naris because you know I, I like them and I like everybody involved. I, I just, I wish it was a little more. I wish it had a little more power or something. You know, I just, I wish there was a little more to it. You know, but it, but the reality is, is it's there. There's not. 
You know, there's no, um, there's no trade organization. There's no, we don't have a union. Uh, I just went out, I just did a gig out in LA uh, on the Warner lot or no on the Yeah. On the Warner brothers lot on one of the post rooms. Yeah. And you know, the engineer, a uh, super great guy. And he's a big time guy who mixed the matrix and American beauty, you know, uh, Tom, he, you know, I was just asking him questions. He's a union. They end, they, they work it from 10 to seven, seven o'clock. They're done. His day's done. Wow. You know, done. You in the, from, cause he's in the film industry. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could yeah. learn a lot from the film industry. Well, sure we could. There, well, there's many things we can learn from the film industry, but it's, it's a different it's a different world, you know. It's it's a different thing. I sit here and you know we were talking about the money part. You know, I have been lucky enough. I started out in this business when I started. I made my first studio gig. I made five dollars an hour. That was my pay, five bucks an hour, right? That would have been in 1986. My second gig, I made seven bucks an hour, all right? My third gig in the studio world, I think I made 350 a day, all right? 350 a day gave away to 500 a day, 500 gave away to 700, 700 gave away to 900. And, you know, my day now runs anywhere uh, just, you know, from... To be honest with you, uh, from a grand on the bottom end to four grand. Damn. Now, four grand is the 186 track mix gig. That's a, you know, that's a big time pop record mix. And that may not be a day. That may take a couple days or so. You know what I mean? But mostly for me, the studio and I, I would say we average between a uh, uh, thousand on the low end to 1800 to 2000 on the top end. All right. Do I work every day? Nope. Uh, do I work most every day? Yeah, I do. So, you know, it works out. It's been good. Do I, do I charge every client that? Nope. But it, it, but like if I'm doing a major label thing, I'm not getting paid for three months. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just how it is. So if I book a month, like I just did a month for universal, right? I started in September. We ended it at the 1st of October and I got paid uh, last week. So if you take a month out of your life uh, and then have to wait two months to get paid, you know, it requires some capital and it requires some income to do that. It was tough, man. It was, it was a struggle. There's no leeway, right? There's no. I got paid when it got turned in. And not even that, I, I didn't get paid when I got done and turned in the invoice. I got paid when the producer turned in the master. Uh. Now, could that have been set up differently? Yeah, could have. Um, was that something my manager, I do have a manager there in LA now. Is that something he did wrong? No, not at all. It, it was uh, more of a situation. He was sort of coming in on the back end of an existing relationship. The, the good news is, is that I, you know, this last year, back in June, I took on Jeremiah Graber at GPS. You know, it's interesting. I, I You say uh, I took them on, you know, uh, they took me on, I took them on. I mean, I'm paying them, so I pretty much hired them. You know what I mean? They just chose to be hired by me, I guess, is the deal. 
And, um, you know, the first couple months were a little rough, a little rocky. But now it's starting to really, you know, because I got to know everybody. Now it's better, you know. Tell me about that. The world of management is elusive to me, and I think it's elusive to a lot of people. And as Robert Smith, uh, who was on the show two weeks ago, and he said, the mistake that a lot of people make is, is they think, I'm going to get a manager and that's going to solve my problems. That's going to get me more, more oh, work. No. So tell no. me about your experience briefly with what, what made you decide to get a manager and how does that, how does that work? Do, can you just call him up and say, Hey, this is Vance Powell. I need management. What ended up happening was for me, I was working on this record, this Jeff, the brotherhood record with Warner and the A&R guy who was doing the record was like, I've heard your name a ton, but only in the press. Never like taking meetings with people and things like that. Like, you know, who's your manager? And I was like, um, well, I don't have one. I just done it myself. Most of my friends think I'm completely unmanageable, you know, because I'm real hands on. And I'm kind of a no bullshit taking kind of person, sort of. And he said, well, if you ever need one, a friend of mine works for this company called GPS. And he said, you you know, you, you should maybe hit him up. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I will. And he said, well, let me just, I'll just send out a little invite. You know, I'll just loop you guys together. And so they looped us together and I found out that, you know, my friend Jakir King is, you know, a close friend of mine also is managed by them. I talked to Jakir. He was like, yeah, they're great. They're nice, nice guys, you know. You know, so we started talking. And, you know, I had issues with the way that they wanted to sort of deal with my business. And I think they had issues with things that I wanted, you know. Like, I didn't want them to have anything to do with Jack White. And want them to have anything to do with a few of my clients that I've built over the years and their thing was like okay cool let's let's let that i will let that happen just you know let's relook at it in a year and i was like okay cool in six months we're gonna you know in, in a year let's look at how much money you've made me versus how much i've made you if you haven't made me 85 percent more money than i've made you then we need to change our agreement and so, and, and they were like, you know, well, let's talk about that. So, so we sort of kind of gone back and forth a little bit on that. And it's, the thing is, it's taken six months for them to figure out what I'm about. And it really comes down to what, what a manager is, is a manager is that guy who talks to that other guy about you. And then you have to get the gig and you have to keep the gig. And you have to turn the shit in and you have to do all that. And then they get you paid and take a percentage of it. The cool part is that I don't have to deal with talking to the band anymore about how much I want to do their record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they don't have to tell me how much they can't pay me the amount that I want to do the record. And there's a weird sort of disconnect between where like, like I had a deal come up a few weeks ago where a band wanted me to mix the record. I listened to it. I thought, yeah, I'd love to mix it. It'd be great. They were like, well, we have X amount of thousands of dollars for you to mix it. And I was like, okay, well, cool. Let, let, well, let's let managers talk, you know? 
And the two managers got together and basically it ended up that they had X thousand plus 5,000 for the record. Uh-huh. You know, so, so it was like, yeah, you know, if you have somebody out there, you know, their job is to get you more money so it makes them more money. Then you have that guy who says, you know, I, we'd love for we'd love for you to mix the record for this ten thousand dollars or whatever, or five thousand. But there's no way that can happen. Can it? Can it be fifteen? Because we're starting to get closer there. And then they're like, well, you know, we maybe don't have that, but we might have this, and and it's not me doing it. You know what I mean? It's not me talking to the guitar player. It may be the manager talking to the guitar player. And so there's a there's a abstraction there that's really nice. If there's an issue, I don't have to deal with it. I like you guys sort it out. I mean, I just had a thing happen with one of my clients that I've had for a long time where I was asked to do the record and I said, okay, I'll have I'll, I'll do the record. Let's we'll I'll have our managers talk. He has a manager, I have a manager. And they talked and the artists or the producer's manager kept sort of pussyfooting around the budget. And so we get really close to the record and I'm like, we got to nail this down, you know? And he's like, I know, but he's not coming back to me. And I said, well, tell him when I'm not going to do it. How about that? Say, if we don't know the budget, we're not going to do it. So we, we played that hardball and it gets really close to recording time. And then and basically we're starting in the record. We're three days into the record when I finally get, it comes back to me through my manager. My manager calls and says, look, here's what the budget is. What do you want to do? Because the budget that they came back was way too low. And I said, you call them back and you tell them that at the end of the day today, I'm going to zero the console. I'm going to get my gear and I'm going to go home. Damn. And, and then, strangely enough, money got found in a budget. Jeez. You know, it's, it's sort of that deal. It's like, I don't want to be there in front of the band talking to the producer who it's obvious he, it's his budget. You know what I mean? We know the, you know, this game works. Okay. I just got, uh, like I just did a record. It was, um, oh, it was a little while back. It was a $30,000 record. All right. So I was paid $30,000 to deliver 12 masters. All right. Now, there's, I have two options. I can get the band together. We can do some production, some pre-production, right? We can get the songs tight. We can go in. We can record them. We can do overdubs. I can mix them, have it mastered, and turn in the record, and, and whatever's left over is mine, right? Or, or I can, you know, uh, try to do it all myself, try to do it as fast as possible and try to make all the money. Now, which one of those makes more sense? Well, it depends. It depends on how hungry you are, you know? And so I, I think that this was a situation where there was X amount of money in a budget for this record. It was a month-long record, okay? Major label, month-long record, all right? So there was X amount in there for the engineer, let's just say $1,200 to $1,500 a day for the engineer, right? Okay. The engineer that they wanted, that's the key thing. And then somebody said, well, we're willing to offer $750 a day for that engineer. Oh. And, and you have to be ready to say no. 
Now, if it was me and I was standing there in front of the band and producer, I probably would have said no, but you know, maybe let's, can we do a thousand? You know, like I, I would have been a probably more of a pushover. You know what I mean? In front of the band, because I don't want to look bad. You know what I mean? I don't want to look like I'm a money grabbing dick, <laughs> even though I am. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, look, man, we all want to make more money. We want to be able to, you know, make enough money that, you know, baby needs a new pair of shoes. You know what I'm saying? So, um, uh, so I just had to make the call to play hardball. And he played hardball, and we got what we wanted. Well, it's well. It's, let me rephrase it. We negotiated. We negotiated to an acceptable agreement on all parties. Yeah, but it's. It, I'm sure it can be frustrating on your part when you know that there's probably money there, and that certain people oh, yeah. are holding back. Well, you know, I, I got. I got asked. Uh, you know, I got asked to do a record a couple of years ago by a producer here in town. It'll remain nameless, but uh, I won a fucking Grammy for the record. It wasn't a Jack White record, and it wasn't a George Clay record. So if anybody just wants to look that up, they can figure out who it is. And the producer actually told me when we were talking about recording that the record label had set the maximum budget for the engineer at $600 a day. And I said, this is a major... This is a, a heritage, legendary artist. And you're telling me that a record label set a budget for the recording engineer. I told the producer, I, I know how this gig works. I've done this a while. This budget's your budget. No, 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 it has nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm doing it on a flat rate. Like, yeah, every, of course you're doing it on a flat rate. You know, I know how this works. No, 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 it's nothing like that. And I said, well, I just can't do it. Tell the artist I can't do it. And, you know, and then there was a sizable amount of hemming and hawing, right? And then, guess what? At some point, he comes around and we meet, you know, way closer to what I wanted than what he wanted, right? The record comes out, wins Grammy, awesome. And then I run into his uh, assistant like a year later, actually at the Grammys last year, to be honest with you. And he told me that the way that the producer had sorted out the budget, that there was $40,000 in the budget to record the record and like 30000 to mix it. And he had just figured out that if he kept the, the, if he kept the recording budget, the engineering and, and studio budget down to around 15 grand, he could pocket an extra 70 grand out of the record. You know, wow. now, this is, this is racing. This is techniques that are racing to the bottom. Now I don't know all those numbers exactly right. I don't know to believe anything to be honest with you, but, and you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't even be talking about it, but basically what I know is I was told one number that was a long ways away from what the real number, and I had to sit there and be the guy to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And so the management thing allows me to not do that. I can just nod and smile and just act like my asshole manager is, you know, being an asshole. When in fact, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, in the end, in the end, we are the we're ones responsible for our, you know, for our destiny if i don't if i can't pay the bills i can't pay the bills 
Now, so you wouldn't I, have been able to get that manager had you not done some of these records. Is that correct? Well, I, I mean, look, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, one one hand doesn't, one one side doesn't exactly do the other. You know what I mean? So. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What do you think, If you, knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time and help fast track young Vance to a, a, fa- a career a career in recording, how could you get there faster? Or how would you, or if you had a, let's say you have a son and you say, okay, here's how this is going to work. And you want to, ma- you want to get management. You want to work with higher level artists or higher paying artists. What do you got to do uh, besides okay. kick ass and be good? Here's what younger Vance would have done. And this is one of those weird deals where um, younger Vance would have probably tried harder. When, when I came off the road and went to work at Blackbird, mm-hmm. I believed for the first three years or so that I was there, that I had a career working as an engineer, a staff engineer at Blackbird. Right. And it became very apparent relatively quickly in that the end of that first year, middle of the second year, that nobody had plans on that happening but me, that that the plan wasn't what I was told it was going to be. The plan was uh, Vance shows uh, everybody how to record, builds a studio for everybody. And then we get everybody from Nashville to come over here and work and Vance sits in his office and answers questions, you know, and teaches assistants how to align tape machines and and how to do documentation and, you know, and all that stuff. I think I would have probably, if I had, you know, in hindsight, what I would have done is I would have stood up for myself. I mean, I had just won a Grammy for the, the my first Grammy for the Jars of Clay record, mm-hmm. right? I think at that point I would have, I would have like asked around and said, look, you know, I'm going to see if I can find a manager either here in Nashville, which is, which is, is not really a good choice or in LA or New York to try to get me some gigs. You know, this would have been 2002 Mm -hmm. to try to get me more gigs so that I could work at Blackbird and, and, you know, sort of get my career going uh, earlier than I did but basically, I got stymied at every turn trying to do that at Blackbird by 
you know, to put it mildly, management not interested in my career. As long as they were interested in my career, as long as my career was helping someone else's career. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it took a little while for me to get to a point where I just got, I just got fed up with it that I just had to say, I, I got to do this for myself. I did a session there that made the studio almost a hundred grand, right? It's two months in studio a full rate, like a really paid the assistance, no, you know, no holds barred, no, no, nothing, no, no costs spared session. It was a, it's a long story, but basically it was a, a really good custom project. Um, and I mean, Richard Dodd mixed it. I recorded it. It was great. And I had, you know, I had some gear and racks that I brought in stuff that the studio didn't have a bunch of outboard weird shit, tape echoes and things that, that Blackbird didn't have. Right. That were just my, my stuff, crap, a bunch of crap that I like, you know, and, uh, uh, we worked till, you know, way past midnight to get all the files ready for uh, Richard to mix. And so I didn't get all my stuff out of the control room. When I came in the next day, you know, one of the guys who worked at the studio started telling me how they were going to charge me for the day because my gear was in the control room. <laughs> and I'm like, I was just here for a fucking month. Are you fucking kidding me? You know, and it, and it turned into this like, I mean, this is a long story that, that has, you know, this, this guy had no, he had no right to say any of that. He was the fucking tech, but he was just trying to, just trying to rile me up. So you know what I did? I, I, I put the lids on my rack. I pushed it out the front door, threw my keys on the front door, on the front counter and said, I'm out of here. I'm done. I rolled my rack out the front door down to the street, down to the corner down to the next corner, through the traffic light, down the hill, and to, into Sputnik. And it never went back. You know, now I continued to work there because McBride and I sorted it out. But at that moment on, my dedication and my, my focus of building that studio to be a place for me to work went away. Because nobody had my back. Nobody was interested in me. Nobody. So when Jack asked me to mix the Raconteurs record, I think most everybody that was there didn't believe me, which is pretty hilarious. And then when I mixed it, you know, people that acted like, you know, well, I was the second choice, you know, Chicarelli should have been mixing it. Well, if Chicarelli would have, you know, if, if let's put it this way, if Jack wanted Joe to mix it, Joe would have mixed it, right? That didn't happen. I did. And when it won a Best Engineered Album Grammy, you know what? You know what I heard? Congratulations on winning. What did you win for? You know, I mean, huh? No, no, no. Yeah. So what would I have done? I would have I probably would have after the first Grammy one win. you know, I would have tried my best to figure out a way to um, capitalize on it. There's kind of a lesson here. Nashville's a hub. Nashville is a full on ecosystem in the music industry, but it's a bubble. And if you don't look outside your bubble, sometimes no matter where you are in the, in this world, sometimes the answer lies outside of the bubble and you, and you have to have enough belief in yourself to look outside of that and, and, yeah. and chart your own destiny and don't always rely on those in the bubble to, to determine your destiny. Would you say? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, Diana from the get go, 
had it all figured out. Uh, you know, she was like, you, you should go independent. You'll be fine. You should just go independent. You'll be fine. And I was scared, you know, and now I look back on it and that's exactly what I should have done. You know, it's exactly what I should have done. But, but I was also a guy, you, you know, thing you have to remember, I was a guy who had been a live sound guy up until two years before that. I had worked in studios for, you know, almost 20 years on and off. But here I was in Nashville all of a sudden, you know, I was, I was not an insider. I wasn't, I wasn't a good old boy by any means. Uh, it just so happened that because of my work with Jack, I just jumped over all of that shit. Well, it, it, the irony in, in that whole thing is, is that Jack is one who works outside of the system in general. Yeah. It took one from outside the system to help you over the fence, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the best thing that ever happened to me uh, in this business, two things that are, that are interesting, all right? I am who I am now in this business, and I have the career I have, because in 1989, my boss went deer hunting, all right? This, this is the first odd thing that I can say. I worked for a guy. Uh, he owned a studio, but his main job, the main career thing that made him money, and that I, and I worked for him, was we did commercial electronics installations, telephones, alarm systems, PA systems, all that stuff, commercial electronic stuff, gate systems, fences, you know, all that deal, right? Right. That's, that's what he had. He had this company. And he bought an old Ford Bronco at an auction. It was beat up piece of crap. And he was like, I can't wait to take this Bronco to this place where I know I can set up a deer stand. I can, you know, because he's a big deer hunter, right? Yeah. He takes his Bronco and he plows through the backwoods. And the first day he's out there, he gets this deer. Now, you can only get so many of these a year, right? So he gets so fired up about it, because I think he can get two, uh, two or three. I can't remember. That he, he ends up kind of spending about two and a half weeks out there getting his quota, right? And what happens is that, this would have been 89, I think. What happened is that the three weeks he was out there, he forgot about a bid, not just one, multiple bids that we had out with the school system there in Joplin that needed to be turned in basically before the year ended, right? Yeah. And so suddenly we didn't have any work. Like we just didn't have any work. Just dried up. I got I got laid off on Christmas Eve, huh. right? So I got laid. I get laid off on Christmas Eve. I have to do unemployment. And I'm I'm you know look man. I'm I'm like 25 or six at this point. You know, I mean this is not the end of the world for me. I I lived with three girls in a house. That I think my my total nut for the month was maybe 200 bucks. You know what I mean? I mean it, you know I wasn't living high on the hog. But I, he, this guy also had a studio. Now I still had studio work. I could, I could make some money at five dollars an hour, right? Working for the studio. So I, I kept working. But what happened was I, I didn't go back to work right away. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't go to work every day. So I started doing some more live sound stuff with some bands, and uh, I did a show. I did a show up in Springfield, Missouri, and. Uh, I got to meet this guy, this good friend of mine, uh, Lou Whitney. Now, well, you know, now he, he just passed away this uh, couple months ago. Right, right. I, I saw uh, that. But 
I got to meet him and, and hang around. And I, I just, my whole focus changed because I was, I was done with Joplin. I was done with putting in PA systems. You know, I was done with crawling through raccoon shit to run mic lines for the choir loft. You know what I mean? Like I was tired of that shit. I wanted to like make records. I wanted to work with a band, you know, again, I wanted to do that again. And so I got offered this job up in Springfield and I took it in April. And I remember having this conversation with my, with my boss, Rick Massey at the time. I was like, I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I, I said this to him, I said, look, so I have this problem. I have a friend who has to tell his employer that he's got to quit. And he's like, oh yeah, what's your friend's name? I go, well, his name is Vance. And he has to tell his employer, Rick, that he has to quit because he's got a better opportunity somewhere else. You know, I mean, I kind of framed it in this whole weird way. And he's like, well, I think you should tell your friend he should do that. You know, he was very, he was very, he was good. But he asked me, he goes, well, why do you feel like you need to do that? And I said, because I can't rely on you for my career. I can't rely on you. You're, you, you might go deer hunting. You might go deer hunting again. And that's exactly what I said. You might go deer hunting. And so it was funny, like a few years ago, I, I thanked him for going deer hunting. Thank you. For, thank you so much for going deer hunting, you know? By the same token, I had an Alamo Spring reverb that I bought. Jack White asked me if we had a, had a guitar reverb that wasn't a Fender. And I said, well, the studio doesn't, but I do. I said, I'll loan it to you. He said, well, that's cool. I go, well, it's down the street. I'll go get it. He goes, it's down the street. I, I go, yeah, I have a studio down the street. He goes, oh, you have your own studio? And I'm like, yeah, it's down the street. He's like, oh, really, where at? And so I told him. And so a couple evenings later, he just walked in and came and checked it out and hung out, <laughs> you know, because 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 he was interested. He didn't have a studio here yet. He was interested in possibly recording somewhere else other than Blackbird because Blackbird was expensive. This was what during Icky Thump. I mean, he was just like this, you know, working at Blackbird wasn't his normal thing. You know what I mean? He was looking for something interesting and different. I didn't have a tape machine at the time, you know. The only thing we ever recorded, the only thing he ever recorded at Sputnik was the demo for the James, uh, the James Bond track. We did the demo for that there. But, you know, it, it, it just was sort of that deal. So I had this crazy spring reverb, and that ends up with me doing, the, doing a thing with Danger Mouse and then doing this White Stripes B-side and then the Raconteurs and then the James Bond and then Karen's record, Karen Nelson's record, and then the Dead Weather, and then, you know, Wanda Jackson and all these Blue Series singles, and then another Dead Weather record, and then Blunderbuss, and all these live records. I mean, obviously having Jack's name connected to yours on a Grammy award-winning record made people notice. And, and the thing was is that, you know, I probably should have got a manager then but I didn't because it was so easy to just, I just didn't have to deal with anything. I was, I was doing tons and tons of work for Jack. I, I worked like 220 days for him one year, you know, so I don't need a manager to handle that. It's easy. Yeah. That's, I guess the difficult thing, but, it, but as, as Robert, Robert Smith, the engineer in New York had said, you get a manager when it starts to get a little hairy. Yeah. Well, you need one when it starts getting hairy and, that, and that's the deal. And I've definitely been there, man. I have most, definitely been in that situation where I just really want to give somebody, I want to just give this away to somebody else. You know what I mean? Right. 
I'm just like, I, please somebody take over this for me. Is management looking for uh, engineers that have a track record of working with name brand artists or, or is that a factor? I would assume that that's like a prerequisite. I, I, look, I think everything is all about how people can make money. You know what I mean? Right. Think, think about it like this. If you have 20 producers on your roster, right? And those 20, 20 producers are big time people, right? Who are making maybe, you know, a half million dollars a year, right? And that half million dollars a year or, or more, some people I know make a lot more than that. I don't know many that do, but I know people who have. If they're making a half million dollars a year, 10% of that is 50 grand. So you're looking at $75,000, right? That's one client. So, yes, you're saying Because you're saying it's 15. 15%. Yeah, that's the standard deal. Plus, you know, 15% on your royalties, 15% on everything that you do during the term. All right? Now, obviously, your mileage may vary. Some people have better deals than others, you know, but, but that's a standard. Let's just standard, make it simple, 15%. All right. Now, let's say you're making 100 grand a year. Okay, well, 100 grand a year is 15 grand. That's a lot less. And so I think the impetus for a lot of managers is to try to get the guys who are making bigger money and, and get long-term income streams by royalties, publishing, blah, 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 all that stuff. Got it. Not that that's right or wrong. It's just, that's just kind of how it is. That's their business model. That's the business model. And the business model is, you know, you can't have a manager, I think a producer manager who has, who manages one guy because he ain't going to make no money <laughs> unless that guy's, you know, unless that guy's uh, Chris Lord Algae. Yeah. And you know, or Michael Brower making what he used to make, and what Chris is doing. Chris, Chris used to make, you know, and I, I mean, I look. Chris used to make a lot of money mixing, and he still does. But he's doing multiple things at once now. You know, he's mixing a couple songs a day at least. You know, I think I think the ten thousand dollar a song days for Chris are over. Now, I don't know that. I could be completely wrong. But that's your guess. That's my guess because I hear people talk. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Chris is a super guy, nice guy, man. He's made a fuck ton of great records. So I hate to think that, you know, you know, your money goes down just because the business goes down. But, you know, it's there is definitely supply and demand. Hey, let's let, bring it down with me for a sec to a, a lesser level than than Chris uh, or, or even yourself. Talk to me about the average Joe, you know, like me. Okay. Experienced, hasn't really made any records with some super name brand artists, but, but, but needs to work more. So what, what should guys like me be uh, thinking about now? I, I don't think you and I are probably financially that far apart. To be well, honest. well I, let's put it this way. We're not anywhere near as far apart as I am from Chris Lord Algae. True. Or, or even like, you know, my friend Reed or Jakir or, or Justin Ebank or any, any of those or Chuck Ainley or any of those. Trust me, I mean, you know, I'm still slogging it out down here in the in the pits, having to every now and then mix a 10-song, $5,000 record. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't like doing those anymore, and, and I won't do those. I won't do them, period, unless I love the band and I love the music 
and there's some way that I can make a little money on it. I got point or publishing or something like that. Yeah. You know, or I just absolutely positively love it and I don't care. You want to be my manager? I'll take those $5,000 mixing jobs. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Uh, I'll, I'll just start sending them all to you. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, and believe me, I, I get tons of people who email me and say, you know, hey, Mr. Power, I love your records. You know, I love that Dead Weather record. I was wondering, you know, how much is it to mix my record? And and I send it to management. Management says seventeen hundred dollars a song, and they freak out and never talk to me again. Right. So th those are all those gigs that I'm glad that other people are getting. It's, it's fine. It's great. So, but back to what we were saying, I, I I think the thing is is that the only way these days for people to know who you are because there's no such thing as credits anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, like recording credits uh, that people can read. Unless they're getting vinyl, and that's the market that I love. I love when people read my name on a record, you know, um, is the whole social media world. Uh, I'm not very good at it, actually, to be honest with you. I, and I'm terrible at it. I do Twitter for business. And I do Facebook for my friends. Oh, I follow you on Twitter. But I don't tweet a lot. Every now and then I do, but I should be better at it. But I think the thing is, is that I have, I have over a thousand followers on the side of a thousand. A thousand people were interested enough to hit that button on their phone, you know? It's like amazing. A thousand people. I think you underestimate Rise yourself. Up. Rise up. Rise up, my, my Rise minions. up, my army of 1,000. I've said it before to you at, at uh, PotluckCon. I, I think you underestimate yourself. Well, that's my job. That's yeah. my humble upbringing, Matt. I know. Humble That's, Missouri upbringing. Yeah. You know, we're the show me state. You got to show me. You got to show me how badass I am. Right. You, for, you, for, me, for me to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. You so. can take the kid out of Joplin, but you can't take the Joplin take out Joplin of the kid. Yeah, no. Fuck no, you know. You know, small town boy, 40,000 people, you know. Never going to amount to anything. And who knows? I mean, we just, I, I make some records. That's not really amounting to anything. I'm not fucking solving Ebola. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not brain surgery. It's, you know, it's it's just we make some music that people may or may not like. There's no there's no great outcome in music. You know, you make it and it's like, oh, there it is. All right, now what's it going to do? It's going to fly to the Mars. Nope, it's not going to do that. You know, it's not going to solve it. It's not going to cure Ebola. Nope, it's just going to sit there. Somebody may listen to it and like it, and that would be it. And that's awesome. I'm amazed we get paid money to do that. You know, I'm shocked yeah i mean the little money I, I i make on some of these projects i'm just like wow this is such i mean it's great it, it really is enjoyable work yeah in spite of you know us you know moaning and groaning about some of this shit. yeah and 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 you know i gotta be honest with you i mean i i'm very happy i'm i'm not moaning and groaning i don't want to moan and groan about it in any way shape or form or sound like it you know and i'm, I'm trying to be as candid as possible uh, and you know, some of this people may get mad at me or whatever, but I mean, you know, I'm not saying anything. It's not, I don't, I'm not saying anything. I don't think is the truth that way. Uh, no. And, and those of us who know you, who are friends with you, uh, you know, know, know the, the gray areas around much of what you say. So we right. know, know that those well, that might get offended are not going to get offended. Yeah. Well, so. I think though, for, people who are in that situation is, you know, just do your best work. Try your best to not fall into the trap of complexity 
and lack of decision-making. Just make a decision and live and die by it. My friend Lou Whitney used to say he had the greatest sayings. He was full of them. And one of the things that you always say to me that I love is one man's boy howdy is another man's far out. And and the funny, even funnier was a couple of years ago, he told me, he goes, I, you know, I've actually updated that, you know, here for the new millennium. Uh, now it's one man's OMGs, another man's WTF. And, <laughs> and, and, and basically what he's saying is that no matter what you do, you're going to have people who love it and you're going to have people who hate it. And then everybody else will be in the middle. They'll either be apathetic about it or they'll like it, but not, not love it, or they'll dislike it, but not hate it. But a bunch of people will love it. And those people will talk about it. And possibly some people will hate it. And those people will talk about it too. And you just, you just, you know, one man's boy howdy is another man's far out. So do your best, try your best to, to be honest with people and, and when you get to a point where you're you're taking money for doing this, you have to respect that this money came to that person the hard way, because usually that's how it comes to is the hard way. Unless you live in San Francisco and everybody uh, works at Google or Twitter, uh, <laughs> and then it just they just went to school and got some learned how to code, and now they're all fucking millionaires. But the, the reality is, is most artists are not wealthy people. Uh, most bands don't have a lot of money. So the money that they're spending with you uh, is hard-earned. You know, it's hard-earned. And being hard-earned means that you have to handle it with care and care about what you're doing. I have fallen into the trap of just, I'm doing this gig, um, as someone once said to me, oh, the fucking rent gig. You know, it's a rent gig. You know, I try my best to not do those just purely for the rent money. You know what I mean? Right. But, but we all have done it. We have all done it. We have all fallen short of the glory of the rent gig. You know, one, one guy's rent gig is another guy's big break, you know? Yeah. And that's the, that's the same thing. It's loose thing just in a different thing. Hey, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'll edit, uh, edit, edit all of my stupid shit out. I'll edit all your stupid shit out. I'm going to edit all my stupid shit out. <laughs> all right, man. Well, um, I don't know what I'm going to see. I'm definitely not going to be out for Nam. I'm going to be busy. So I don't know. It could be uh, maybe Potluck again. Tucson. T Tucson. All right. All right, dude. Take, take care. All right. So there you have it, Mr. Vance Powell. Wow. Always, always good to talk with Vance and really happy that he came on the show. It's really a, a treat for me. And I hope it was a treat for you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And at prices a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. As usual, 
tell everybody, bring them in. Let's, you know, let's get the discussion going here about what we're doing. I think that'll do it. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure and tell all your friends, subscribe, do the social media tour. Say some nice things to us on Facebook. Send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Yeah, feel free to connect. It's free. All right, see you next session. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.